Lord, we thank you, um, as has been said, that we're able to still worship despite not being able to physically gather. God, we recognize that this isn't ideal. We all desire to be together, God. Thank you for that beautiful desire of wanting to be together. And also thank you for the opportunity to still be able to sing worship songs and hear from your word, God, um, even in a day like this where we can't uh, meet in person, God. So thank you for this. God, I pray that um, as we're all at home, um, there's in some ways more opportunity for distraction, God. I know that's even true about me. I'm sure that's true about uh, a lot of the others on this call, God. I, I ask that you would help us to focus on looking at you right now, Lord, and, and that we would, I pray that we would see you in your word this morning, God, that that we would learn about you, God, and that we would be brought to a place of seeing you more clearly, and that we'd br be brought to a place of greater obedience to you. Lord, This is we ask this this morning. Do that this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to be able to learn about your word together, God. Um, yeah, thank you for this, Father. Um, thank you that you're with us, uh, and thank you that we get to study your word now. Be with us now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the main point of this passage, as I see it, is a little bit threefold. Number one, Jesus restores, we should believe in him, and we should obey him. Jesus restores, we should believe in him, and we should obey him. Our passage today is very much a continuation of of the passage from last week that Jimmy preached on, and he rightly emphasized that that passage is largely about restoration. Restoration. So Jesus just went to the ruler's house that Jimmy covered, um, and he raised his daughter from the dead. And then after that, we read verse 27, which is our sermon passage this morning, which reads this. By the way, I, I recommend you pull up uh, a Bible app or a Bible um, that you have nearby. I will be going through uh, the verses that way. And I'll also, because this is kind of at the end of a theme that I'm seeing in chapters 8 and 9, I'll kind of be going between chapters 8 and 9. So it might be helpful to have a Bible in front of you so that you're able to, to do that. But for now, we're in chapter 9, verse 27, and it reads this. As Jesus passed on from there, that is the ruler's house, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. At this point in the narrative, Jesus is becoming more and more famous. Just previously, in chapter 9, verse 26, it says, quote, The report of this went through all that district. So these two blind men have heard about Jesus, and so they follow him, asking him to have mercy on them. Have mercy on us, son of David. And as you can imagine, they're asking him to heal their blindness, specifically. But in doing so, they refer to him as son of David. And this is the first time in the Gospels that people in the narrative identify Jesus this way. Now, as you might remember, Matthew does open his Gospel account with a sentence that identifies Jesus as the son of David. Chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
So right from the get-go, Matthew is identifying Jesus that way. But this is the first time in the narrative that someone has publicly identified Jesus as the son of David. And when they call Jesus the son of David, they're calling him the Messiah. They're calling him the Messiah. So that is the person who would deliver Israel. It was an Old Testament hope that's talked about in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Greek word Christ, Christ is a Greek word, Messiah is a Hebrew word. They identify the same concept. Messiah and Christ are the same things. When we call Jesus Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, we're identifying him as the Messiah. And that is the Old Testament hope that the Messiah would come to restore God's people, to save God's people, to deliver God's people. And the Old Testament, well, it says a lot of things about the Messiah, but one of those things is that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. The Messiah would be a descendant of David. There are numerous passages that talk about this. One of them is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, when God promises to David, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So there's a, a promise that God has made with David that one of his descendants would rule and have an established, even eternal kingdom, as other passages say. So by the way, also, this is why Matthew opens up his gospel this way in chapter one, verse one. Tommy preached on that passage in September, so I'm not going to cover it here, but if you want to learn more about that uh, in chapter one, one through 17, Tommy preached a sermon about that. So that's there for you to, to learn more about the meaning of the genealogies and more about his messiahship. But to summarize, Matthew is saying right from the opening of his gospel, Jesus is the promised messiah. The one who Old Testament believers have been waiting for. So they, and they know he's the Messiah because that's why they're calling him son of David. So they address him as the Messiah, but specifically they address him because they want something from him. Have mercy on us, son of David. They want to be healed. Let's look at verse 28. When he, that's Jesus, entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. So the house that Jesus has come back to the house where he was originally when the ruler came in to meet him. And so you remember the scene where Jesus is eating with sinners at the house. Matt May preached on that passage in chapter nine, verse 10. So Jesus was eating and then the ruler that Jimmy preached on came in, literally came into the house and asks Jesus to raise his daughter. Jesus goes out from that house to the ruler's house, raised the girl back to life, and then he heads back where he was eating earlier in that original house. And so now Jesus has gone inside the house and the blind men have followed him inside that house. And then Jesus asks them if they think he can heal them. At this point, I think this would rightly seem like a strange question. These, these blind men have been crying aloud, it says, asking him to do this. As obvious as this is, keep in mind, they're blind. They have literally blindly followed Jesus all the way to this house. And they have gone through the trouble of following him blindly and all the while crying out publicly, have mercy on us, have mercy on us, son of David. They were crying aloud. Obviously, they think he can do it. Why would they be here? Why would they do any of this, right? 
But Jesus makes them say it. And they tell him, yes, Lord. Do you believe I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord. They do believe he is able to heal them. And then verse 29 tells us, then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. So it worked. They did believe. Jesus did restore them. I think uh, there's a number of things to learn from this passage, but I think one of them is Jesus' words have power. Jesus' words have power. Jesus really can do anything. All he has to do is say the word. Remember, Jesus is God, right? So when we look at Genesis 1, for example, we read about God creating the universe. He created the universe by speaking it into existence. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 reads this. This is in the creation narrative. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And the rest of that narrative unfolds along these lines. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. The point is that God's words are totally effective. And this goes beyond just healing some blind people, although it obviously includes that, as in this case. But if God says something, then it is so. For example, if you're sick and God says, be healed, you will be healed. If you have challenges in your life, if you have decisions to make that are difficult, if you have stressors in your life, as many of us do, if you have conflict or suffering, if you struggle with sin and you feel that you cannot get out, if God says about any of those legitimate and difficult issues, if he says, solved, solved, those problems will be solved because he can just do it. He can just do it. We, on the other hand, cannot just do it. We cannot overcome all of the challenges in our lives. Certainly, we cannot overcome our problem of sin in our life. We are sinful, each and every one of us. On our own, we cannot solve that problem of our sinfulness. We, we just sin. It's what we do. It's not all we do, but it is what we do. We can't solve our problem of sin any more than these two blind men could heal themselves of blindness. We just need Jesus to do it. He is able to restore sight to the blind, and he is able to restore sinners into friendship with him. All he's got to do is say the word, and it will be so. Be so. so, whether our problem is sickness, or in this case, blindness, or lack of direction or clarity in our life, discernment, or, or grief, or some kind of suffering, you name it, even sinfulness, whatever our problems are, Mercy House, let's go to Jesus, the only one who can just say the word and make it so. Let's go to him. Switching gears a little bit, another thing that we see in this passage is that in this case, faith is the means by which Jesus brought their restoration of sight. Faith is the means by which Jesus brought their restoration. According to your faith, be it done to you. So in other words, God restores them. How does he do that? He restores them by their faith. <coughs> Excuse me. He restores them by their faith. So restoration 
in the form of healing and deliverance of demonic activity, which we're going to see in the next paragraph, that's been a major theme of the book of Matthew so far. And it will continue to be a theme of the book of Matthew throughout the entire book. But there's a more specific theme here that has emerged in chapters 8 and 9. As Jesus restores people, in chapters 8 and 9 specifically, he often explains that he does so because of their faith. Because of their faith. He doesn't do this every time in chapters 8 and 9. And then after chapters 8 and 9, he does this a lot less. But it's a theme that has emerged nonetheless in these two chapters. Sometimes in these two chapters, he simply heals people without mentioning faith. But out of the nine healings or deliverances in these two chapters, four of those nine, Jesus explains that he's doing so on the basis of their faith. And this is the last of those four instances. So I think it's appropriate to to look back at a moment like this and see what theme has emerged and where we are now. So the first of those four instances is in the previous chapter, in chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 10, the centurion's servant was paralyzed. He asked Jesus to save his uh, paralyzed servant and make him well. And Jesus marveled and said to those who followed him, In chapter 8, verse 10, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then in verse 13, and to the centurion, Jesus says, said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. So this restoration in this case was because of his belief, was because of his faith. Let's look at the next example. In these two chapters, in chapter 9, verse 2, Tommy preached on this passage. There's a paralytic who was brought down out of the roof of a house and brought down to Jesus as Jesus was inside of the house. So Jesus, so the narrative says this, and behold, some people brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Likewise, chapter 9, verse 22, Jimmy preached on this last week. There was a woman who was bleeding for 12 years. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And then the last of those four instances is in our passage this morning. Chapter 9, verse 27, according to your faith, be it done to you. So this is not the only purpose of faith throughout the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to learn about several more things that faith does later in our sermon series. But this is a significant theme in chapters 8 and 9. That the way we receive restoration is by faith. The way we receive restoration is by faith. Now, Matthew is referring in chapters 8 and 9 to physical restoration. He is. But... He's not only referring to physical restoration throughout these two chapters. This is especially clear in the case with the paralyzed man, and it's hinted at in the case of the bleeding woman. Let's take a look at the paralytic, and let's see what Jesus says about his faith and what that has to do with both physical healing, but also spiritual healing. When Jesus saw their faith, chapter 9, verse 2, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. At this point, Jesus has not physically healed him. It's only later when people doubt whether Jesus can forgive sins, does Jesus actually physically heal the blind man as proof that Jesus can forgive sins. Chapter 9, verse 6, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise 
pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. Again, Jesus' words have power, don't they? In the case of the paralytic, Jesus observes his faith along with the faith of his friends. And on the basis of that faith, he forgives him of his sin. When Tommy covered this passage, he very helpfully, I think, pointed out that forgiveness of sins was actually this man's greatest need. To be able to walk was not his greatest need. To be forgiven of his sins was his greatest need. And Jesus forgave him of his sins because of the faith that he and his friends had. It is true that physical problems are often cured by our faith in Jesus as we pray in faith, expecting that he will deliver us and restore us. That is true. Faith is not independent of our physical issues. But the greater reality is, the greatest reality is, that our spiritual problem of sin is cured by our faith in Jesus. This paralytic's faith causes his forgiveness, and his physical healing is a proof of that forgiveness. Let's look at the bleeding woman. In chapter 9, verse 22, as I just read, Take take heart, my daughter, your faith has made you well. Instantly she was made well. We could, this is a perfectly legitimate translation. It's, it's totally true. It's totally legitimate. I'm going to offer you a retranslation that highlights something that the Greek hearers would have understood from this passage that we may not pick up on from just the phrase made well. The phrase made well is representative of the Greek word that usually means saved, saved, so referring to salvation. And so let me let me read that for you, kind of retranslated in that way. Chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. And instantly the woman was saved. Now, she's being saved in this context from her bleeding condition. This is a physical condition she's being saved from. So it's true that Matthew is describing a physical restoration. But by using the word saved, Matthew is also at least hinting that salvation is caused by faith. Salvation, spiritual salvation, deliverance of sin is caused by faith, not just physical healing, not just physical healing. Now, the fact that we are saved by faith is a major theme of the entire Bible. But one verse that I'll read for us here that I think is in particular helpful for um, what we're talking about here is John chapter 1 verse 12, which I'll read to you. John chapter 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive Jesus who believed in his name, who believed in his name, we're talking about faith, right? To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So how do we become children of God? By believing in Jesus. In other words, how do we become children of God? By faith in Jesus. By the way, Relevant also to these two examples of the paralytic and the bleeding woman, notice that in in John chapter 1 verse 12, by believing, he gives the right to become children of God. I think that's why Jesus tells the paralyzed man, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. To the bleeding woman, take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. They had faith in Jesus, so they became children of Jesus. They became his son. They became his daughter. In much the same way, when you and I believed 
in Jesus, or if you're not a Christian yet, when you believe in Jesus, we become God's son or daughter. We become God's children when we believe in Jesus. And so I want to plead with you, Christian, trust Jesus, believe Jesus, believe that we can come to him with all our problems, especially our problem of sin, and believe that he actually took our sins away on the cross. Believe that he actually rose from the dead and believe that after you die, he will raise you up too, to be with him forever, to enjoy perfect family life as fellow sons and daughters with him. And if you're not a Christian, I plead with you to believe in Jesus. Believe all these things about him. If you do believe him, if you have faith in him, you will be instantly made a child of God. Just like the bleeding woman was instantly saved or made well. The moment you believe, you become God's child. And then you will be with Jesus, enjoying Jesus forever in eternal life. And you're invited into that this morning if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're listening online. Take Jesus up on that offer to believe in him. Now, I've talked a lot so far about how the greater reality here is that we are restored from our spiritual condition of sin and brought into a spiritual condition of innocence and righteousness and perfection. And that's true. That is the greater reality. But I, I just want to mention, I don't want to minimize or underplay the role of physical healing. Healing happens when we ask God in faith. It really does. There are stories about that here at Mercy House. That happens. Healing is a major part of Jesus's ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a major part of Jesus' ministry in the whole New Testament. Healing is a major part of Jesus' ministry today. So I don't want to minimize that. The point I'm trying to make here is that this theme of faith bringing restoration goes beyond physical healing. And that theme has emerged in chapters 8 and 9. This faith brings restoration, not just to our physical lives, but most importantly, to our spiritual lives. He touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done for you. And their eyes were opened. But verse 30 continues, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. So this demand explains why Jesus waited to do this miracle until he was indoors. Remember in verse 28, he entered the house. Jesus does not want this miracle to be public. He wants it to be a secret, and he does not tell them why. But he's really serious about it. He sternly warns them, see that no one knows about it. He's pretty serious about it. Verse 31, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Jesus literally just said, do not tell anyone about this. And they flagrantly disobey. They do not keep it to themselves. Instead, they spread his fame throughout the whole district. This is exactly what Jesus just told them not to do. We've seen this before in the Gospel of Matthew, where we have a moment of teaching by way of negative example. This is an example, in other words, of what not to do, of what not to do. They are not obeying Jesus. And this is how the scene ends. This is not a nice ending. There's no like makeup or something like that where they change their mind, they decide to change their lives or something. No, this is just the disappointing ending that we have about these two blind men. They just disobey Jesus. Despite their belief 
that he can heal them, they do not obey him. They'll take the benefits from Jesus, but they will not take the commands from Jesus. They're eager to benefit from Jesus, but they are not eager to obey Jesus. And I wonder if this is relevant for some of us this morning, if if some of us tend to do the same thing. I wonder if some of us are more interested in the benefits that Jesus gives us than we are interested in obeying him. So a question that I have that I'll give you a second to, to think about, is obedience a major theme in your spiritual life? Is that true about you? I I want to invite you to take a moment to think about that. Is obedience a major theme in your spiritual life? Or are you more interested in perhaps a sense of church community, a sense of camaraderie, peacefulness in your life that you get from listening to sermons, listening to worship music, Helpful morals to live by. Avoiding the punishment if you don't follow Jesus. Are you more interested in that? Or are you more interested in being physically healed, being financially provided for? Or whatever it is, whatever benefit that you may receive, that we may legitimately receive by Jesus. Is obedience only a minor theme in your spiritual life compared to other themes? To put it maybe bluntly, are are we treating Jesus like a friend with benefits? Or are we treating Jesus like our Lord, who is our friend, giving him the obedience that he deserves? They call him Lord. These blind men call him Lord. Jesus asks, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they respond, yes, Lord. They call him Lord. But they do not treat him as Lord. The end of the Sermon on the Mount reads this. You've heard this verse before, chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. That's exactly the situation that they're in, isn't it? Last week, Jimmy rightly said, faith is not an option. Faith is required. And amen. And our passage this morning only adds to that very true statement. And that statement for our passage is now, faith without obedience is not an option. It is required. Faith without obedience is not an option. It is required. Notice that what the blind men affirmed was that Jesus was able to heal them, but they did not say, Jesus, we believe in you and we will follow you wherever you go, and whatever you tell us to do. They don't say that. They only followed him insofar as they were benefited but not to the point of committed obedience. The kind of faith that they had, the belief that they exercised, the kind of faith that they had is described in James chapter 2, verses 17 to 19. You may have heard these verses before. Faith by itself, James says, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, if you do not have works and good deeds that accompany that faith, it's no faith at all. It's meaningless. It doesn't exist. It's dead. He continues, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. James is sarcastically saying that. And then he offers a corrective. And I will show you my faith by my works. He says, I will show you my faith by my works. My faith is demonstrated by my works, by my deeds. 
He continues, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Here's the point. Merely intellectual belief that God is real and that God can deliver us of our physical issues, including blindness. Just if it's only intellectual belief that God can do something or that God is real, that is still a dead faith, Mercy House. A living faith, a real faith, a faith that brings us to eternal life, to become children of God, that kind of faith is a working faith, an obedient faith. If we are real Christians, our faith in Jesus will bring us to obey him. I will, James says, I will show you my faith by my works. I will show you my faith by my works. Well, these blind men showed that they have a similar faith to the demons in James chapter 2. As you might imagine, demons do not have saving faith. But these blind men had a faith that affirmed who Jesus was. They knew, you're the Messiah, you're the son of David. They knew, but they did not have the saving faith that brings about obedience. They call him Lord, but they do not do his will. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So at this point, we might be asking, okay, I, I hear all that, that makes sense, that sounds true, but come on, why does Jesus not want to be proclaimed right now? I mean, even later in Matthew, as we know, Jesus commands us to proclaim him. Why does he tell these people not to do so? Jesus doesn't provide the answer to that, although I imagine they were wondering why he said it to them as well. But because Jesus doesn't provide any answer to that, I'm not going to give a thorough answer to that here in this sermon. That'll come up in chapter 12. Uh, but for now, the point I want to make is this. It does not matter, actually, why Jesus commands this. He just does. He just does. An example that I imagine parents in particular will resonate with, and I'm aware that I'm speaking here as a non-parent, but don't worry, I'm very credible because I have plenty of experience as a disobedient child to my parents. So I, I think I have the right to say, to give an example like this. A anyway, last night I was at a wedding and there were some children there. The kids were dressed up in cute little kid-sized suits and dresses and they looked great and it was really fun, it was adorable. I imagine that their parents said to those kids, hey kids, you need to wear these outfits to the wedding. But if those kids are anything like I was to my parents, the ever consistent response would go something along the lines of, why, why, why do I need to wear that? I, when I was a kid, I hated dressing up. I, it would just upset me, I, I hated it. It just felt, anyway, I didn't, I didn't, I would always ask, why, why, why do I need to do that? Why do I need to do that? But here's the thing, ultimately, as the parent, you don't need to explain yourself. Your kids just need to put their clothes on because you're telling them to. Your children don't need to know why they need to dress up at a wedding at the end of the day. They just need to obey you. In a similar way, we don't always need to know why God commands everything that he does. We don't need to know why he commands everything that he does. What we need to do is trust God. In other words, what we need to do is believe God, believe and obey him. And by the way, all God's commands are for our good anyway. They're for our flourishing. So we should just trust that God has our good in mind. 
and we should just obey him, even if we don't fully understand. We don't have to understand God. We have to trust God and obey God. Okay, so that scene ends, and then we come to the next paragraph in verse 32, which reads this, as they were going away, so that is the the blind men, as the blind men were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him, was brought to Jesus. So he was brought. People are coming to Jesus. They're seeking him out for his healing and for his deliverance ministry. This has been happening throughout the gospel of Matthew as early as chapter four, and it continues to happen now. There have already been several instances of demonic deliverance that we've encountered in the gospel of Matthew. This is another one. If Thinking about demons and demonic activity is new for you. We preached a sermon a few weeks ago where Jesus cast the demons into pigs. I recommend that sermon to you. We talked a lot about demons there. We also have a theology class. We have a podcast about angels and demons was the most recent lesson. So there's plenty of content for you if that's new for you. But for now, suffice it to say, Jesus has become famous for casting out demons. And so a demon-oppressed man is brought to him in this case. And Demonic activity can look like a variety of things, but in this particular case, the demon has made the man mute. He is unable to speak. And then verse 33 records what happened after. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Jesus delivers this man from demonic oppression, and the man can speak now. The passage does not tell us very much about the deliverance, the mechanics of it. We don't know what Jesus said. We don't know how Jesus casted out the demon. We're not told even what the mute man said. And that's because that's not the point of the passage, is it? Here's the point of the passage. It's what dominates the paragraph here. The crowds marvel at the uniqueness and the amazement of Jesus while the Pharisees associate him with Satan. That's the primary point of this paragraph here. The crowds are marveling at Jesus. The Pharisees call him satanic. Now, when the crowds say, never was anything like this seen in Israel, I really do not think they're just talking about this case of casting out a demon and making a mute man speak. Because this comment comes after a whole slew of substantial miracles, especially in chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus was teaching, proclaiming the gospel, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. I'm going to list off a number of other things that Jesus did. In chapter 8, he heals a leper. He heals a paralyzed person. He heals Peter's mother of a fever. In chapter 8, verse 16, there's another case where he heals everyone who came to him. He healed all who were sick. He casted out the demons who were oppressing people with a word. Just everybody who came near to him, he healed. Chapter 8, verse 27, he makes the winds and the sea obey him. Later, he delivers two men from severe demonic oppression. In chapter 9, he heals another paralyzed person. He heals a woman from a 12-year-long hemorrhage. And that's, by the way, on his way to raising a girl from the dead back to life. And then he heals two blind men. And then he makes this mute man speak. Indeed, never was anything like this seen in Israel. It is absolutely right that the crowds marvel at Jesus and what he's doing. 
And they are also right that no one like Jesus has ever lived. He is the Messiah, as was identified earlier in uh, verse 27. He is the son of David. He is the promised one who has come to save all God's people. The one who can simply speak and it is so. He's been doing what no one else can do. And he will continue to do what no one else can do throughout the gospel of Matthew. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they associate Jesus with Satan. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. They're referring to Satan there. That's really far from calling him the Messiah, isn't it? The Pharisees are actually going to say something really similar again later in chapter 12. And in that case, Jesus will directly confront them about it. But for now, Matthew just notes that the Pharisees said this. The crowds throughout the Gospel of Matthew are not necessarily a bad example, but they're also not a consistently good example either throughout the Gospel of Matthew. They're usually sympathetic to him. But then at the end of the gospel, the crowds are the ones who crucify him. So I don't want to talk about them as if they're the ideal either. But in this case, the difference in the reaction of the crowds and the Pharisees begs us to notice. And it begs us to question for ourselves, I think. How will we respond to what Jesus has done? How will we respond to what Jesus continually does in our lives? Will we marvel at him? Will we believe in him? Will we obey him? Or will we turn our backs on him like the Pharisees? Will we deny him? Will we disobey him like these blind men and like these Pharisees here? Will we, like these Pharisees, refuse to acknowledge that he is the Messiah, the son of David? But he is the Messiah, Mercy House. He is God himself who has come down, lived a human life, and has died on the cross, enduring the punishment for sin that you and I both deserve. He did that for us so that we, instead of being punished, so that we would believe in him and become children of God, loving him and enjoying him forever. That's what the Messiah has done for us. That's why we call him Jesus Christ, because he is the Christ, which means he is the Messiah, which means he is the promised one who came to earth to die for us, to save us, to enjoy us forever so that we could enjoy him forever. Mercy House, let's marvel at Jesus. Let's believe in Jesus. Let's obey Jesus. I'm going to pray to close this out. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, the Messiah, to us, to save us, God. A big uh, theme in this particular passage is the disobedience of these two blind men, God. And, And we ask that, God, you would forgive us the times we disobey, much like they do. God, and and we also ask for greater obedience, God. That comes from you. We can't do it apart from you. We literally, we need you to do it in us even, God. We cannot do it on our own. We certainly can't overcome our problem of sin on our own, God. We can't do it. We need you, Jesus, to do it. 
And to extend further, we need you to do everything in our lives, God. Whether we are thinking about how to raise children, how to care for our families, how to think about making decisions moving forward, how to think about grief that we're experiencing or stress or suffering or some kind of pain, even physical, emotional, mental, whatever it is, God, we, we need you, Jesus, who can speak the word and solve our problem, God. It's you alone who can do that. We need you, God. We believe in you. Thank you even that faith itself is a gift that you've given that to us, God. We, we praise you for giving us the gift of genuine faith, God, which empowers us to go beyond what these blind men did and, and to believe that you're able to do it and then to obey you to do it, God. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you that that's how you use your great authority. That's another major theme of the Gospel of Matthew so far, starting in the Sermon on the Mount and continuing even through here. You're using your authority to restore is what you're doing, God, and you've done that in our lives. And we thank you for that. We praise you for that. We want to obey you because you deserve it, Jesus. Thank you for dying for us on the cross. Thank you for giving us belief in you. Help us, God. We're not going to obey you perfectly, but help us to determine to obey you well, God. And thank you for dying for us, for giving us of our sin when we inevitably fail at that. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.